Am I live? All right. I think I'm good. All right. I apologize there for a second. I couldn't hear anything. As long as y'all can hear me, I think I should be good to go. Can I, I just want to do a sound check. I see we already got some people in here, so somebody let me know in the comment section if y'all can hear me because I did not hear my theme song for some very odd reason. But we're live on Carving It Up on, on Twitter as well as the Carving It Up YouTube channel and the Grid Network YouTube channel. As always, I'm Bryson Carver. Very excited today. A couple of awesome college football games I'm going get, to get into in just a second, starting with the game that was watched by 27 million people, Michigan and Alabama. Uh, yeah, my man Patrick Brown, I knew he'd come through for me. Shout out to you patrick he says your mic is good now thank you very much buddy i appreciate you pointing out because like early i like i didn't hear my song i don't know what was going on but nonetheless fun show getting into both college football playoff games also carving up the context should be a very interesting one because there is a one, one of the reasons i created carving up the context was to dispel false narratives and there's an odd narrative going around right now that uh the only reason the dallas cowboys are probably going to win the nfc east on sunday against the washington commanders is because of luck. Stay tuned in a, about a half hour for me to dispel that because it isn't just Dallas that I think is getting too much heat. I think we're giving too much credit to Philadelphia. More on that later in the show in about a half hour and carving up the context. Also, it is Wednesday and it is our regular season finale of Bryson's Best 10. Very, very excited this week. Some shakeup, obviously. I don't think there's going to be any surprise at who number one is. I mean, that, that kind of goes without saying at this point. I admit that openly as a Steelers fan. But tune in. Bryson's Best 10 at the top of the next hour or in 45 minutes, between 45 minutes, top of the next hour. Very, very excited. Bryson's Best 10, week 18. We are in the final weekend of the regular season coming up on it anyway. Playoff scenario. Scenarios, all these again there are teams in my top 10 that may not make the playoffs which is kind of hard to believe but that's where we're at at this point of the NFL season and a lot of seating still to be determined going into Saturday and on Sunday and at the end of today's show my man Allen Iverson uh said that Kobe Bryant is the second greatest player of all excuse me of all time to Michael Jordan not LeBron James I love you AI you could not be more wrong I'll tune in for that later on today's show because it, it's arguing, and I love Kobe Bryant, but arguing Kobe Bryant is better than LeBron James is one that is not based on fact. Later in the show. But first, the Michigan Wolverines, the Alabama Crimson Tide, it was everything we thought it would be and then some. And what I loved about the college football playoff this year is not that just the fact that I felt like all four teams had a legitimate shot to win the national title. Because the fact of the matter is, in years past, I can absolutely feel like, or say, the last two years with Cincinnati at four, TCU, how in God's name did TCU get to number three? Neither of those teams had a shot of winning the title. This year, Michigan could win it, Bama could win it, Texas could win it, Washington could win it, any any of these teams has a shot to go on and win this, win this whole thing. Michigan won this one as I thought they would, although I thought Alabama would cover. I thought it'd be very, very tight, and it was. But, uh... I'm hearing a little bit of, of chatter about, hey, did the better team win the game? You know, because Alabama did have a lead with three minutes to go. Alabama was able to convert in the red zone when they were able to, to get down there. On the rare occasions, they got down there. Uh, Nick Saban, we know, is the greatest head coach of all time. There's no question about that. And Alabama seemed to have a little bit, a little bit of momentum late in the fourth quarter. What is ironic but also true is that it's actually Michigan's flaws that showed me they were the better team. Not defensively, where they were awesome, 
Jalen Jalen uh, Milrow was pressured on four of his first six dropbacks from from the jump. Michigan's defensive line. I felt like this would happen. Dominated Alabama's offensive line. There's no surprise there. Michigan's defensive line has dominated a lot of teams this year. Okay, so you have that component. You have Michigan's running game, which was excellent. No surprise there. 130 yards, four yards of carry. Blake Corum was was excellent in this game. It was the fact that Michigan's special teams was nothing short of atrocious. Was, I mean, it's, listen, we're not going to hold college kids to the standards we would NFL uh, players. Obviously, we talk about the Rams having a bad special teams. We're going to hold them to a higher standard because they're professional athletes, right? But this Michigan, <laughs> this Michigan Wolverine special teams probably could not have played worse in this game, aside from maybe a missed extra point in regulation or something like that. But guess what? They had two muffed punts, one of them that nearly cost them the game uh, at the very end when they got when uh, Michigan got pinned back inside of their own five-yard line when the game was tied with about under a minute to go. So you had two muffed punts, you had a botched extra point, you had a missed field goal, and a missed uh, point after try. And by the way, a play, too, that were, remember Alabama's punter, this is in the first half, is kicking one off, and a Michigan player comes in and and, and crashes into him? and they didn't call a, a, a running into the kicker, that should have been a, a penalty and what would have been an automatic first down for Bama. So a play that should have been running into the kicker, a, a, a botched extra point, a missed field goal, two fumbled punts. And Michigan still won. Michigan still won with a quarterback in J.J. McCarthy that I'm going to be honest with y'all, I had major, major questions about coming into this game. I was a little bit worried. Okay, I know he can play in structure. A little bit of a Jimmy Garoppolo syndrome where... I know he can play in structure. I know he can work out of the play action. I know he can be good and efficient and not turn the ball over when Blake Corum's running effectively and this Michigan running game is at its peak. But what about when the other team knows you're going to throw? What about that? Well, J.J. McCarthy, if I read the stat right, either five for five or six for six on that game-tying drive at the end of regulation, including, and this was a very well-designed play by Jim Harbaugh by the entire Michigan offensive coaching staff, beautifully designed fourth down play to to get uh, to, to get the first down. By the way, going for it with three minutes to go, going for it, I think two and a half minutes to go, three minutes to go, in their own territory, down seven, fourth and two. Folks, you don't get this. Game's over. And the reason I, I kind of emphasize that is I was saying watching the game, I, and I'm not Mr. Conservative when it comes to when it comes to being armchair coach, but I'm like, ah, I might consider kicking this thing to Bama and playing defense. You got two to two and a half minutes to go. All three of your timeouts, you can very easily get the ball back with another opportunity. And Jim Harbaugh's like, screw it. I, I've been I, I've been losing all these ball games, lost the last two semifinal games. I am going for it. I am being aggressive. I am trusting my quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, who made every throw he needed to in that last drive. And by and large, J.J. McCarthy, given the circumstances, we know Bama's secondary is, is pretty darn good. Couldn't have been much better. 17 to 27, 221 yards, three touchdowns and a QBR 91.9. So J.J. McCarthy played very, very well. Blake Corm ran into touchdown uh, in overtime, which ultimately ended up being the game-winning touchdown. Um, and listen, I know a lot of people are talking about that last play call for Alabama, the fourth and goal, where they ran the the quarterback keeper with, with Jalen Milrow. I get the criticism on that. It, it, there's some. There's one film angle that makes it look like it might have been a busted play uh, because the the wide receivers. I don't know if it was a decoy, but the receivers look to be in in sort of like a, a break a break and slant route. The, the the running back is coming to the left. Maybe it's like a screen. I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, but Jaden Milrow obviously bobbled the snap. It wasn't a a terribly good game for Bama center who actually saw I saw today transferred from Alabama. But ultimately, it was all said and done. The better team won. And by the way, in this game, obviously we're not talking in general. But in this game, 
better coach won. Michigan was playing with more energy, even when they were trailing, were playing with more energy, seemed to be more, uh, have a greater sense of urgency in this football game, even in overtime. Uh, they executed, and this is one I knew my dad. I'm going to give my dad a lot of props here because he was the one who made this point when we were watching this game. He said, when this game went to overtime, he said, Michigan's going to win this because Michigan is great in these short yarded situations, a short field. You know, if you start at the 25 yard line in overtime, even if it goes to a third overtime and it's a two point conversion contest, that favors Michigan as well. And we know Bama teams the past like to historically, at least, at least under Nick Saban, kind of be a, a ground and pound team. And an argument can be made. Nick, I'm sorry, uh, Jim Harbaugh beat Nick Saban at what used to be his old game. So Michigan was the better team. And frankly, they've been the best team in college football all season long. The Big Ten was not that good this year. We've seen that as evidence, not just in the regular season with many of the teams struggling aside from three, including Michigan, but in the bowl games, Ohio State lost to, to Missouri and scored three points. I get without their starting quarterback, but that's not great. Uh, indoors, by the way, you have Penn State, who lost to Ole Miss badly, given the circumstance, badly to Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin. Michigan came in against a team that knocked off Georgia and pushed them around for... 60 minutes and change if you include overtime. So hats off to Jim Harbaugh, hats off to Michigan. And before I even transition to Washington and Texas, I will say this. Um, I would, given the sourcing that I've got, I would bet, I would almost bet my life savings that Jim Harbaugh is going to the NFL next year. I feel that confident. Because you're talking about, we know, we understand the, uh, the punishment looming from the NCAA, the advanced scouting, which is the most ridiculous scandal I think I've ever seen in my life in college football, but put that aside. Jim Harbaugh will have all the leverage in the world. He's got a $120 million plus contract to come back to Michigan. But you have the Chargers who are interested. You have the Raiders who are interested. Maybe Chicago, now Chicago looks like they're bringing back Eberflus, but if Jim Harbaugh, who has a history in Chicago, may want to come there, Bye-bye, Matt. We're going to bring in Jim. Okay, like they're, they're not going to hesitate, especially given that they have the number one pick and they are got a big decision with, with Justin Fields. Jim Harbaugh, I can promise you 1,000% is going to the NFL. He's, he's not coming back to Michigan. Like what Jim Harbaugh would want more than anything, because he loves his kids, he loves this coaching staff, et cetera, is to go in next week on Monday night in Houston, Texas, beat Washington, hoist the national title, Seacrest out, goodbye NCAA, screw y'all, I'm going back to the NFL where I, you know, all I did was go to three straight NFC championship games and came within a pass of winning a Super Bowl against my brother. And it's what I've said about Jim Harbaugh for years. I think if you talk about college and NFL coaches, if you combine the two, I think Jim Harbaugh is one of the five best college, I'm sorry, one of the five best football coaches in America. Honest to God, Jim Harbaugh, you combine college and NFL, He's one of the five best football coaches in the country. He's had success literally everywhere he's been. Kind of similar to Urban Meyer, but saw that Urban Meyer experiment worked in Jacksonville. He was fired before his first year even concluded. Urban, I'm sorry, Jim was good at San Diego State. He was good at awful Stanford. He was good with the awful 49ers. Took over a team that was irrelevant. Made an NFC title game. Made another NFC title game. Made the Super Bowl. Made another NFC title game and came that close. The Richard Sherman play, remember that? The Crabtree uh, Crabtree play? Nearly got to another Super Bowl there. Comes to Michigan, irrelevant program. 
has gotten them to multiple college football playoffs, has gotten them to has won multiple Big Ten title games, is on a three-game winning streak against the Ohio State University, and is a win away from a national title. So advanced scouting my behind. That's BS. Very happy for Jim Harbaugh, genuinely. All right. Patrick Brown in the comments. Michigan's defensive line had five sacks against Alabama's offensive line. And, and again, they five sacks, and it's not, and that that obviously indicates, hey, they got a lot of pressure. I don't even think that stat, Patrick, even indicates how how much they pushed Alabama around that side. I mean, from the jump, it's like, man, they are absolutely bullying these guys. And we're not you seeing Bama get bullied. Bama's lost. Nick Saban's lost. He rarely gets pushed all over the field, and that's what Michigan did. Patrick, if the center for Bama doesn't have a low snap, the play was designed to swing out to the running back. I that's I kind I tend to agree with you, Patrick. Two receivers were in front to block, and the play stalled once the snap went low. And Milrow kind of panicked, and obviously he picked up the snap. He understands the sense of urgency. He's got to try and make a play. But they're at the three yard line. Michigan's collapsing inside. Like there's nothing's going to happen there. Um, but I, I tend to agree with you, Patrick. Milrow had to bail, and Michigan had to get uh, get the stop inside the red zone, or got the stop inside the red zone. One hundred percent. And that was, again, and I'm about to get into Texas-Washington in just a second. This is what I loved. is not just that you had four teams that could win the national title. It's that you had two very, very, very different styles of football games. We knew Alabama-Michigan was going to be, I mean, now it's 27-20. to 20. I'm not going to make it out like it was the Ice Bowl in the 60s, but it was a relatively low scoring relative to what we're used to in college football, especially with great teams, great offenses, we knew it was going to be a physical drag-out game that ultimately, at least I felt, ultimately Michigan was going to get the upper hand because they're more talented, they're used to playing these games. And that's one thing, too, about Michigan is that, and it's it's why I feel they're the best team in the country, even, even over, we saw what Georgia did to FSU, Georgia being number one all season long until the playoff, is there's something to be said. I talk often like the best teams can beat you multiple different ways. But there's something to be said that, especially when you're undefeated, and basically every single win looks the same. Now, in this game, they had to rely on J.J. McCarthy with J.J. McCarthy's arm more than they did against Penn State, for example, when he only threw eight passes. But by and large, you, you watch a Michigan football game coached by Jim Harbaugh, you kind of know what you're going to get. There's something to be said about that. You know what you're going to get, and I, I anticipate you'll get more of the same win or lose. You'll get more of the same against Washington on Monday. And as for the Washington-Texas game, uh, which came after in the Sugar Bowl, it was the exact opposite. It was, I mean, not say it wasn't physical at all. It was. It's football. You know, you know as my buddy Ryan Flowers says uh, about the safety of the game, you can only make a cigarette, but so healthy. Same can be said about football in terms of its in terms of its physicality. But Washington, Texas, these are two great offenses. One awesome quarterback I'm going to get to in just a second, and one very good quarterback at Texas, Quinn Ewers. Two excellent head coaches, one and Kalen DeBoer, I favor over Steve Sarkeesian. Good players defensively, great wide receivers for both sides. And ultimately, albeit by the skin of their teeth, it was Washington who came out uh, with, with, with the W, 37-31 to 31 over the Texas Longhorns. And this, I have been on this for months. So we all know Caleb Williams is, is the, we all know Caleb Williams is by, I don't even say, I don't want to say by a mile, but by a pretty sizable margin, he's the best quarterback talent in this draft. It's not even close. Uh, Joel Klatt on, on Fox Sports said, um, I remember when I was watching USC play Colorado, Deion Sanders and all that, and Lincoln, I'm sorry, uh, Joel Klatt said he's the only quarterback prospect I've ever evaluated where there literally isn't a hole and he's great at everything. He's mobile, big, strong arm, accurate, outside the pocket, inside the pocket, can make all the throws, good decision maker. He's got everything you want in the book. 
So Caleb's going to be the number one pick, whether it's by the Bears, whether somebody trades with Chicago, which I think would be a mistake for the Bears, somebody's going to take him number one. And with the second pick, assuming the team with the second pick doesn't need a quarterback, that's currently Washington. They need a quarterback. You take Michael Penix Jr. That's no disrespect to Drake May, who most draft scout, uh, draft evaluators have as the second best QB. That's not a, a, a slight to, to Jaden Daniels or to Bo Nix or any, any of these guys. All five are more than competent, more than capable first-round picks, more than deserving. This is your second best quarterback. This is a guy who has been compared to, because obviously we know that the left-hand comparisons uh, to Tua, but he's basically folks have said he's Tua, but with a stronger arm. I'll go a step further. I think he is a left-handed Joe Burrow with a better arm, just not quite as accurate. Burrow, though, the one thing, like the big thing with Joe Burrow is, my Lord, he's accurate. And still is in the NFL. That's translated extremely well, and that translates well, uh, regardless of, of whatever your upside may or may not be. Michael Penix is spectacular against Texas, a defense that's had been up and down this season, but by and large has played well when they've had to. 430 yards passing, two touchdowns, 29 of 38, by the way, completion. So he's, he was excellent in that department and a QBR of 97.7. So he was absolute money all night long. Now, I'm hearing folks say two things, and actually we discussed this on the 8 o'clock spot last night in the Grid Network when I was when I was hosting, and, and a topic of discussion in terms of skepticism surrounding Michael Penix Jr. is twofold. Number one is the fact that he has two unbelievable receivers with him. Amazing, with the Washington Huskies. Fair, but uh, I could argue the exact same with Joe Burrow. He had this guy, maybe you've heard of him, Jamar Chase. Yeah, this other guy, maybe you've heard of him, Justin Jefferson. Pretty good. <laughs> Joe Burrow had both of those guys for an LSU team in 2019 that I maintain is the greatest college football team of all time. And the second sort of component that people are concerned about with Michael Penix Jr. is isn't terribly mobile. Well, he's mobile enough. He can rush if he absolutely has to. We saw that with C.J. Stroud. No, nobody looked at C.J. Stroud as exactly Lamar Jackson college. How great was C.J. Stroud with his legs against Georgia? How great was Joe Burrow with his legs again in the college football playoff? I remember even that regular season against Alabama, Joe Burrow was money with his legs. I think about somebody like Trevor Lawrence who had a like a 70, 80-yard touchdown run against Ohio State in a playoff game. We don't view Trevor as crazy mobile. We don't view Justin Herbert as, you know, Justin Fields in terms of mobility. If I'm not, if memory serves me correctly, I think he might have led Oregon in rushing against Wisconsin in Oregon's bowl game that year before he declared for the draft. Now, Michael Penix Jr., or Mike, yeah, Michael Penix Jr., his rush yards uh, this season, I'm pretty sure I've got this uh, accurate. Uh, Michael Penix Jr.'s stats are by no means whatsoever going to blow you away in terms of, in terms of running the football. Uh, he's only got, uh, yeah, uh, 13 yards running this year. So like that, that's not great. Uh, three touchdowns, though, on the season. So mobility isn't going to blow you out of the water. And I've always said, I think in today's NFL, unless you are a deadly accurate passer, I mean, like Joe Burrow good, I don't think you could be immobile. Like Jared Goff has had a great year, has had a pretty darn solid career to this point. I mean, he's far from a bust. I don't think he lived up to being the number one pick. The Rams did trade him after all. He's far from a bust. But uh, when the pocket collapsed a little bit, he's not near as effective, nor is any quarterback, but especially a guy who can't move. So I understand that concern with Penix, but I've seen him move in, that, in and outside the pocket at times. It's not going to reflect in his rushing stats, but he can make all the throws in the book. He's got the strong arm, he's got the accuracy, and he's got the size. 
I say, why not? We've seen, at least at the college level, and this doesn't always translate, but we have seen at the college level, is the fact the Pac-12 is probably the toughest conference in the sport this year. The now dead Pac-12, at least after Washington plays their national title game on Monday night, faced all the Giants. He beat Oregon twice. He beat USC. He beat Utah. Now, some of that is a great coach in Kalen DeBoer, who is one of the five best coaches in college football, has built an unbelievable program uh, with Washington. But if he were to go to the Washington Commanders, who have the second pick in this draft, who knows? Maybe they promote Eric Bieniemy to be their head coach. Offensive mind. We saw him and Mahomes had a pretty good relationship for many, many years in Kansas City. He has weapons like Dotson and McLaurin. Good running game. Michael Penix Jr. ends up with a roster with, you know, at least B-minus skill position players, worst-case scenario, in a decent offensive line. This could be a very effective quarterback, and you can build your roster around him accordingly. But this is by no means, you're like, what about the, the Mac Jones mobility concerns? Folks, Mac Jones was getting run down. Check the tape. I remember talking about this on my show three years ago during the draft. Mac Jones was getting run down by defensive tackles. Not defensive, defensive tackles, the big guys. So, like, this isn't the same situation with Michael Penix Jr. So, I think he's mobile enough to be successful. He's very, very accurate. He's got a monster arm. He can make every throw in the book. And he just carved up one of the more impressive defenses in college football, at least among great teams. This kid's really special, man. I, I love everything. And this is, I think Drake May is, it has the potential, stylistically, to be the next Justin Herbert. I mean, not just the fact he wears number 10. Like, his, 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 um... His mechanics look like Herbert. He can make throw similarly to Herbert. I think May is going to be awesome. Like, I'm not, I'm not tr trying to throw shade on him or Jaden Daniels, who I'd love if my Steelers took, or Bo Nix. This kid's got it all. Well, what about the age? Burrow was old. How'd that work out? I don't think age is like the, the worst thing ever. Okay? I don't think it is. My man, Philip. Mark my words. Caleb Williams will be slightly better than Kyler Murray in the NFL. He is Kyler 2.0, but he is taller and bigger. Well, first of all, especially given the way, and I've been a Kyler skeptic, by the way, given the way Kyler's played this year, I don't think that's exactly a, oh, he's a bust. Now, given the expectations, given the fact that I and many people think he is one of the next great quarterback talents coming out of a draft, we talk about Elway, we talk about Peyton Manning, we talk about Andrew Luck and Trevor Lawrence. He's in that class. Again, everything on the table. And I hear, oh, what about his what has maturity? What about he's crying in his mama's arms? Well, it tells me he cares about the game. How many quarterbacks, be honest with yourself, how many quarterbacks have we seen be kind of, eh, okay. Okay, like, oh, okay. Like Jimmy Johnson, I heard talking the other day, the Hall of Famer Jimmy Johnson, who rightfully was put in the Cowboys Ring of Honor last weekend, he was talking about, like, I, I did not want to draft a player or take a player if I didn't sense they had that competitive spirit. Evidently, Caleb Williams was upset enough that he went to his And again, that's something else, too. He is a kid. Like, that's, let's, let, let's at least be fair in that regard. Like, he's, he's basically my age. And I'm, I'm still, I guess I'm still considered a, a college, or I, I am a college kid, a kid in general. I'm a sophomore in college, but you get the point. But this is a guy who maturity, by the way, Baker Mayfield, way more immature than, Clay, way more immature than Caleb Williams. Now, Baker never panned out to be the number one pick good, but 
I mean, he's been pretty good with Tampa. And by the way, guess what about Baker? Just as any adult can do, because we know it takes guys longer to mature than the women. That's just scientifically uh, proven. Baker's matured. Like Baker still plays a chip on his shoulder, but he's controlled it now. I like guys with a chip on their shoulder, as long as they can control it. As long as they don't let it dominate every aspect of who they are. Baker still plays a chip on his shoulder, but is way more mature, way more measured. Not going to put his foot in his mouth at a press conference. Like that's the guy in Cleveland. That's not the guy in Tampa Bay now. And Caleb's way better than Baker Mayfield. I mean, he can he can simply do things that Baker and. I mean, you see why he's being compared to Mahomes. I'm not saying he's going to be Mahomes good because I think Mahomes already is the fourth best quarterback ever. I'm not saying he's going to be that good, but will I be shocked if he's one of the 10 greatest quarterbacks of all time? Not in the slightest. He's the Victor Wimanyama of the NFL draft. He's that good. Uh, that said, though, Michael Penix Jr. ain't exactly the worst consolation prize, okay? There are, there are, worse, there are worse number two prospects to an all-time great prospect we've seen in NFL history, okay? I think I think Penix is going to be amazing at the next level. I really do. I I, I love everything he brings to the table, uh, from a, an intangible standpoint, from a from a talent uh, standpoint. And by the way, something else too. If forever drafts him, he's going to be ready to go right off the bat. I mean, he's twenty four years old. It's hard to get much more reps and and things of that nature. He should be ready to go. Whether it's Washington, whether it's New England, whoever it is. Very very interesting. By the way, national title game. Next Monday night in Houston, uh, Michigan is a four-and-a-half-point favorite. So Vegas likes Michigan, again, rightfully so. I do think they're a better team than Washington. Obviously, the, the Huskies have the better quarterback. And by the way, comparable head coach. I think, again, Jim Harbaugh, I mentioned, is the one of the five best uh, football coaches, college or NFL. Just put them together. I think he's one of the five best. But Caitlin Boer is no slouch. He's no slouch. He's built a winning program in Washington. Him and that staff, they are, they are money. They're going to be very successful for a long time. And something else, too, that I really liked is that, or like, because these two teams are going to be playing, is the fact that both of these teams are, and I say this as an SEC guy, these are two Big Ten teams. At least next year they will be, and, and for the foreseeable future, Washington, along with UCLA, along with USC, along with Oregon, is going to be in the Big Ten. And this is kind of what I said, and you're going to get a, a great preview of this on Monday night. Like this, this is like the best case scenario. The Big Ten is just over the moon right now. This is what you're going to see moving forward. Is by the way, Michigan. Guess who Michigan has during their schedule next year? Obviously, Ohio State, Washington, and Texas. And this has been the issue with college football for a very long time. Not that many great games. Let's be honest. Listen, the NFL trumps college football for many reasons. The product's better, the coaching's better, all that. But one thing that the NFL trumped college football on. I mean, and it wasn't even close, was, man, every week in the NFL, there's at least one game you got to see. Like, you got to see this one. College, it's every couple of weeks. If, if it if it's re gets really dry every three weeks, I mean, count in your hand this season the number of games. You're like, okay, I have to exclude your favorite team. I have to get in front of a TV and see this game. This is, this is playoff altering, obviously, Michigan-Ohio State. Bama, Georgia, and the SEC title game. But again, that's a that's a conference championship game. That has massive, massive stakes. And there's not many. Florida State, LSU, probably all the way back in week one, I would say. LSU, Bama, maybe, I guess just because LSU beat them the year before. Like, there's not that many games this, the, this season that were just huge games for the college football season. Next year, <laughs> everywhere. We know how great the SEC is already with Bama, Georgia, Tennessee. Uh, how about, by the way, I think I got his name right. 
How about Nico Iamaliava? I think I got it right. Iamaliava. I've been practicing like crazy the last few days. I just want to mention this, okay? Because uh, Tennessee beat Iowa in the Citrus Bowl, the Cheez-It Bowl as it's become uh, known, the Cheez-It Citrus Bowl. Uh, Nico Iamaliava. See, now now butchered it. Nico, let's just let's just leave it at that. Well, I, I'm I'm gonna get better. I said it. I said it right before. I still got to practice more. Nico, listen, numbers look fine. Twelve of nineteen, 151 yards, a touchdown, QBR of eighty, but he ran for three touchdowns on the day, on twenty-seven uh, yards total. And I gotta say, uh, seeing Josh Heupel, head coach of the Vols, open up the playbook a little bit more for 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 Nico in the same sense that he did for Hendon Hooker in 2022. I'm just saying, look pretty good. Looked really good. You know, the Vols might be making some noise in 2024. You, you, you never know. I'm just throwing that out there. You know, he had to he had to kind of shut off the playbook a little bit with Joe Milton. That's no disrespect to Joe because he he gave his all for Tennessee, and that's all you can ask for as a Vols fan. But man, this kid, number one high school quarterback in the country. I'll tell you right now. Watch out for those Vols in 2024. I'm just leaving that out there. Thank you so much for mentioning this, Patrick. I almost forgot. FSU still threw shade at Alabama for losing. The pettiness of my team never ends, shaking my head. I almost forgot that, Patrick. And this has been an all-college football show for the first half hour. We're about to get into some NFL in just a second. Not after this, though. Let me pull this up because I want to I make sure I, I, I get this right. Because Florida State players were tweeting during the Bama-Michigan game. And we all were. I was. I was live tweeting it. We all were. It was. It was, it was a very entertaining football game. If I can just pull this up because it was absolutely rich. Here we go. One player after Alabama lost to Michigan, and we know there was a controversy between Bama and Michigan. One player says they ain't deserve that bleep. Jerry and Jones, this other player, difference between earned and given. Demarcus Walker. This is why Bama shouldn't have been in it. Jordan Travis put the little emoji, the, you know the emoji where the, the face is like melting? Jordan Travis actually happened to delete that tweet. And Tyler Keltner, who I believe is the kicker for Florida State, <laughs> his was the best. Pretty poetic if you ask me. Hashtag, go Knowles. In the words of the great Stephen A. Smith, the temerity, the unmitigated gall of the Florida State Seminoles. Have you no shame? Have you no self-awareness? You just got beat by 60. What are we doing? Oh, you're acting like you should have been. Man, you couldn't beat a team that didn't get in it. Come on, man. Have just a little bit of self-awareness. Bama, as we all kind of knew they would, whether you thought they'd win or not, competed with Michigan, and it literally came down to the last play. Even if Michigan had dominated Alabama, won by 30, 40 points. You lost by 60. Again, if FSU beat Georgia, shocked the world beat Georgia, and Alabama got throttled by Michigan. You probably have a case now. But this, this, oh my God, this victim card. I, listen, I know I'm not making myself a whole lot of allies in Tallahassee, but this is, I mean, this is clown stuff. 
This is clownish behavior by Florida State players and by the coach through all this. I mean, it's 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 hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. Unbelievable. I mean, oh, Lord. Patrick Brown, not to mention we got the quarterback from Oregon State in the transfer portal to come down and play for Coach Mike Newworld. Yes, DJ Uyunglele, uh, who was at Clemson, who was at Oregon State and had a very good season at Oregon State. He was kind of disappointing at Clemson, played very well uh, with the, the Beavers, Oregon State Beavers, I think, and then comes to Florida State. So that, that's a great gift for Florida State. And look, they're going to have a great shot to make the playoff next year because they're probably the best team in the ACC in 2024. It's a 12-team playoff, so Florida State's not going to have anything to cry and moan about next year, assumingly. Uh, they got a good quarterback. And Norvell, I don't, listen, I've ripped Norvell. I still think the guy's a really good coach. He's turned around a, a program that was dead in the water and turned it into a pretty respectable program. Uh, Patrick Brown, I, I like the analogy you use here, Patrick. Michigan would have bent the spear and shoved it down our throats. I'm an unbiased Seminoles fan. I have to be honest with the behavior we've seen in the last few weeks. And, and it's it's just, it's it's clownish behavior. That's what it is. I'm not calling these, these kids clowns. I'm not, it's clownish behavior. To lose by six, I mean, it is hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. What would have been better if, and again, I was rooting for Michigan. They were my title pick. I feel like this this narrative around Harbaugh is nonsense. So I was rooting for Michigan. Uh, But it would have been kind of funny if Alabama had won that game, and they came very close in doing so, to doing so. I mean, geez, have a little bit of self-awareness. That's all I'm asking. All right. Bryson's best 10 in about 12 minutes. Uh, we've got a fun segment of carving up the context today because it involves uh, two teams that are both both have a Super Bowl expectations. There's no question about that. The Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. If I can just get this one little thing pulled up here for the segment to make sure that we have it set and ready to go. All right. So we've got that. So. It's time for Carving Up the Context, our midweek segment. As the great prime time, Deion Sanders says, Give me my theme music. On this week's edition of Carving Up the Context, I could I still can't hear the, the, the music through through my earbuds. Maybe, maybe it's my earbuds. I don't know. But on this week's edition of Carving Up the Context. This is a perfect segment or a perfect uh, topic for this segment because in many ways it's why I created it in general uh, because of the simple fact that you have sometimes some some narratives floating around that need to be dispelled because they're simply not true. So I've heard, I'm not going to name any names. They're pretty easy to find. I've heard many pundits, many people of whom I have great regard and great respect for in the national media that have peddled this notion. It's been the topic on some debate shows. The Dallas Cowboys, is, is, is that if the Dallas Cowboys win on Sunday, beat the Washington Commanders, the four-win Washington Commanders, I might add, who the Cowboys beat by five touchdowns on Thanksgiving the last time they met, they win that game, they clinch the two seed, and they clinch the NFC East. Were they lucky in doing so? Really? Are, are, we, are we doing this whole luck thing again? And the reason that question is being asked is, A, you had the ending with the Lions and the Cowboys in that it wasn't, let's just put it this way, regardless of how you stand on it, it wasn't officiated perfectly. The ending between Detroit and Dallas and the two-point conversion and who reported as eligible, who did it, who tried to trick who, it wasn't officiated perfectly. 
right? We all agree on that. Combined with the fact that the Eagles lost four or five games to open the door for the Cowboys to run through and have a shot at the NFC East and the two seed, which is all oh, so important for this Cowboys team to potentially go on a run. Did the Cowboys get lucky? If you want to say they got lucky in the Lions game, I won't fight you on that. But as I always say on this show, this whole notion of being lucky all of a sudden diminishes how good you are, I think it's hilarious. It's what I've always said this about, should this team, is there an asterisk next to this team's championship? No. Every single team that has ever won a championship has gotten lucky to a certain degree. Every single one. You're like every, even like the most dominant teams. Yes. You know how I know that? Because their star players were healthy. Their key players, their key guys, at least most of them, were healthy enough to compete and compete at a high level and win a championship. Every single champion has gotten lucky. We're not even talking about championships now. You know, it's what what's his name? Uh, said playoff. Was it Jim Mora? Playoffs. We're talking about playoffs? Well, both teams are in. Dallas, Philadelphia, no matter what happens, they're in the playoffs. And Dallas, again, has a chance to win the division, has a great shot to win the division against Washington. I would almost flip that question on its head. Not only did the Cowboys not get lucky to win the division, hey, I could argue they got a touch unlucky that it took this long. You're like, what, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you getting at, Bryson? I'll tell you exactly what I'm getting at. And again, I'm not diminishing this team because they got lucky because every team gets lucky. I'm simply stating the facts. This play right here. Now, for the podcast audience, it's the play where Marquez Valdez-Scantling drops the pass that probably would have gone for the game-winning touchdown against Philadelphia with under two minutes to go on that Monday night game. Right there, that picture right there. Looks like he's got the ball in his hands, right? Nope, he dropped it. Marquez Valdez-Scantling dropped a pass, a wide-open throw, perfect throw by Patrick Mahomes that probably would have resulted in the game-winning touchdown against Philadelphia. Did the Eagles get lucky? No question about it, but I don't fault them for it. We don't have the other play. I was not able to get a good image of it, and it would have it wouldn't have uh, given the per- the best picture of this. But when the Eagles played the Bills just one week later at home, remember the play in overtime where the Bills are driving. The Bills get the ball first in overtime, and we all know if you score a touchdown in overtime, you win the game. Bills are going down the field. They're marching. They're driving down the field, converting on third down against this awful Eagles defense. Josh Allen throws a deep ball to Gabe Davis. Now Gabe Davis, number two receiver for the Bills is wide open, wide open. Whether it was Allen or or Davis, whatever it was, it was a miscommunication. Either Davis ran the wrong route, Josh made the wrong read, whatever the case may be. They weren't on the same page. Had they have been, Buffalo would have won that game. And if Buffalo would have won that game, ooh, we'd be talking about the Philadelphia Eagles as losers of six of seven. And a potential to, I don't think the Eagles would have missed the playoffs at that point, but they would have been at least on the ropes. Probably wouldn't have been the five seed. That would likely go to the Rams at this point, given how it's all played itself out. Again, I I, I think the, the luck actually kind of went against Dallas all season long. Heck, you could even say when the Eagles played the Cowboys the first go-round, if Schoonmaker, the tight end for Dallas, is literally, and I'm not exaggerating here, folks, literally inches, two inches, away, f- closer to the goal line, that's a touchdown for Dallas that they did not score otherwise. If Dak Prescott does not step out of bounds on a two-point conversion attempt, 
That's another two points. Now, the game ebbs and flows, and that's not to say, oh, Dallas lost by five. You combine those nine points, they would have won by four points. Like, it's every play dictates what's going to happen the next play. So the whole flow of the game would have changed, obviously. I think Dallas might have actually gotten a little unlucky that it took this long. Is there good fortune that went their way in the sense that the Eagles lost to a bad Cardinals team? Yeah. But I first of all, I picked that to, to be the case. And second of all, when you're that bad defensively, you're going to drop some games down the stretch. When teams not expose you on the, that side of the ball, when you're, you got two, three, four units, I shouldn't say two, three, four, well, you got two units, your linebacking core and your secondary that are objectively bad, don't be shocked if they expose it. And that's exactly what Jonathan Gannon and the Arizona Cardinals were able to do. That's what the Seahawks were able to do on that last drive, targeting James Bradbury uh, to, to go in the game with Drew Lockett quarterback. It's what Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott did the second meeting against Philadelphia. It's what Kyle Shanahan and Brock Purdy did when the Niners came into Philadelphia and kicked their teeth in. Some of it's luck, sure. Some of some good fortune did go to Dallas, but more went to Philadelphia, and they still couldn't take advantage of it. So, yeah, the better team's winning the division. It's kind of like Michigan-Alabama, where there were some things that Alabama did, or I should say some things that Michigan did that Alabama had nothing to do with. Fumble punts, uh, uh, missed field goals. Bama had virtually no impact on some of those plays. None. Michigan just screwed up, and they still won the game. Why? Because they were the better team. They made just enough plays, despite their mistakes, to win the game. The same can be said about the Dallas Cowboys. They did just enough to beat Detroit, despite shooting themselves in the foot multiple times. By the way, guess what? Philadelphia did just enough to beat the Kansas City Chiefs, and just enough to beat the Buffalo Bills. Check back the tape on that show, on those shows. Excuse me. I said the Eagles got lucky. Didn't fault them for it, though. Plenty of teams get lucky wins this, uh, in the NFL. And in sports, it happens. There's 272 games. Somebody's going to get lucky at some point or another, even the best teams. I don't fault the Eagles for that. But I'm also not going to turn around and fault the Cowboys for it. And also say that down the stretch, when coordinators have more film than they could ever have on you, when one team's getting exposed and the other team while treading water just a little bit two and two in their last four games with the Cowboys, you find out who the better team is, and we hope the better team wins the division, and that's exactly what's going to happen. So in this week's edition of Carving Up the Context, sure, did the Eagles, or sorry, did the Cowboys get somewhat lucky against Detroit? Yeah, they did. They had some good fortune to go their way. But the fact that it took this long for the Eagles to eventually have the bad luck go their way when the good luck had been coming in might have been actually a little unlucky for Dallas, but because they're a better team, they're going to win the division. That's my point. Got some comments here. A lot of comments here. Patrick Brown, <laughs> Eagles keep crying. I love it. Don't we all, Patrick? Funny how A.J. Brown held a candid locker room press conference after practice. Eagles players were bopping their gums, acting like they've really done something. And that was odd by A.J. Brown. I don't know if... He talked to Sirianni, if he talked to the Eagles brass, whatever the case may be, because he said, I don't know, you know, he didn't talk after they lost. He didn't talk to the media after they lost the Cardinals. He said he wasn't sure if he was even going to talk to me at all during the week. He comes back, has this press conference. Uh, it, was, it, it was an odd one. Philip, they didn't get lucky, and I'm a Cowboys fan. Dan Campbell had a great shot to kick the field goal after they tried to miss two conversions. The refs also did not call a tripping penalty on the right team. A hundred percent, Philip. And by the way, by the way, they call that triple penalty on, I think it was Aiden Hutchinson, uh, rather than, gosh, was it 
was it Tyron Smith? I forget who they called on for Dallas. One of their offensive linemen. Had they called it on Aiden, uh, Aiden Hutchinson, Dallas would have took a bunch of knees and the game would have been over. Detroit wouldn't have even gotten the ball back in general. It's a great point, Philip. Patrick, what's funny is both Philly and Dallas play at the same time on Sunday afternoon to decide the NFC's title. All we have to do is take care of business and not worry about Philly. And that's why that Cardinals game was absolutely critical for Dallas and for Philly. Eagles were doomed in week one in New England. The following Thursday, Minnesota should have beat them. The same Jets team we beat, they lost in the middle of the season. Defense is, defense is atrocious, and there's no denying it. <laughs> Philip, filthy, filthy Delphia, I like that, is going to lose to the Giants. Okay, Tyrod Taylor's going to put 500 yards on that defense. I don't know about Tyrod Taylor. How about the Giants offense? I, I could see 500 yards. I could see it. Thank you, Patrick. He says tripping was called on Ferguson instead of Hutchinson. Thank you very much. Uh, Patrick, coach, and he's got the pencil emoji. Coach, pencil, Matt Patricia. Can't save them. Nick Sirianni acts more like a fanboy than a head coach. Oh, how poetic their season is coming to an end. And and it's, I have, I've never defended Nick Sirianni's, uh, bravado is the wrong word to use because I like bravado. Um, a conduct. What's the what's the word I'm looking for with Nick Sirianni? How he lack of composure, whatever word you want to use to describe Nick Sirianni. I've never defended that. Well, the one thing I've always defended with Sirianni is that I feel like he is a. And there's a lot of coaches like this. Uh, Zach Taylor's like this. We've had plenty of coaches in the past where he knows his deficiencies and he's going to defer to the people that are better. And to me, that's how Philadelphia's organization is run. Jeffrey Lurie is not going to interfere with Howie Roseman because Howie Roseman knows how to make those decisions. Be nice if an owner in Dallas learned that lesson. But he, he defers to Howie Roseman. Howie Roseman, in terms of putting the roster together, one of the best in the business. But he's going to let Nick Sirianni make the game plan decisions. And Nick Sirianni is going to let uh, the offensive and defensive coordinators make the play-calling decisions. Like, it's kind of like a trickle-down effect. Everybody do what you are good at. And that's, I hate the Eagles, but I, I think I respect the heck out of how they do business in that regard. But when you're limited at coordinator, and we saw the Eagles tried to, they try to be all slick on us, in the middle of the night make a coordinator change to Matt Patricia, then there's something up. And you see A.J. Brown having press conferences, Jason Kelsey, Jalen Hurts, Devontae Smith. I mean, all these guys have been saying, don't really like how we've been playing in the last month. Like, it's almost like the players are trying to send out a signal to the fans, like, guys, this isn't the year. Don't, like, get out of, you know, sell your stock while you can. Jump off the ship while you can because it is it is a sinking. It's like the players know, you know? But I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't enjoying it. I'd, I'd be lying like a dog if I said that this hasn't been uh, great to watch. The Philadelphia Eagles absolutely come come crashing down. So there you go. I, I just, I, I, I don't know, I, and it's in general – whether it's Cowboys or otherwise, I don't like when we use the word luck as a, whether it applies or not, luck, good fortune, whatever the case may be. I don't like when we use that as a word to take credit away from, from the victors. And by the way, I think we do it with Philly in the Kansas City and Buffalo game, and I defended them. Teams get lucky sometimes. Dallas got luck, somewhat lucky too. I'll defend Dallas too, you know? Only only team I put asterisks next to with championships is the 2017 Astros. They cheated their way to a title, blatantly cheated their way to a title. Like that stuff, I don't. Those it is a it isn't a legitimate title. 
Everything else, everybody else, one fair and square. Philip, cry eagles cry, indeed. Patrick, watching their fans cry. A lot of crying in these comments, man. Watching their fans cry. Oh, it's reveling and hilarious for me. It, it is. I, I, I think I've yet to have a a positive interaction with an Eagles fan in terms of they, they say some. I'm not gonna lie. They say some very mean things to me on the, on the internet. It's it's just, oh, I can barely get through the night. I can barely get through the night. It it hurts me that bad. All right, now. One of my favorite segments to do every week, I just did one carving out the context. The next Bryson's Best 10 is, uh, you know, we're going into week 18 of the NFL season. There's a lot of a lot at stake. There's a lot of malign playoff positioning, playoff seeding. There's a chance that a couple of these teams on my list, on Bryson's Best 10, may actually miss the playoffs. That's how uh, crazy and congested that this thing is going to be. And so I'm very, very excited about it. So, the regular season finale of Carving Up the Context. Very, very cool stuff. Four We will start at number 10, making their reappearance on Bryson's Best 10. It is the Houston Texans. The Texans of the 10th best team in the National Football League. And here is why. So you get CJ Stroud back in the lineup off of those two games uh, missed from a concussion. Didn't miss a beat. I mean, Houston went up and down the field offensibly uh, against the Tennessee Titans. So CJ Stroud looked as comfortable as we've seen him look. They were able to score 26 points. Uh, Stroud in this context threw a touchdown and had a pass rating over 100. This is simply a Texas team that when he's in the lineup, they can score on some of the better defenses in the, in the NFL. Obviously, we know Tennessee's a Mike Brable coach defense. Uh, D'Amico Ryan's one of the better young head coach in the NFL, a potential chance for him. Maybe this this uh, Eagles, I'm sorry, this Colts a Texans game could decide coach of the year between D'Amico Ryan's and Shane Steichen. Both are more than worthy uh, recipients of that award, but they're well coached. CJ Stroud is, is balling. Just plug him right back in the lineup. Didn't miss a beat uh, despite some of the injuries they have on their wide receiving core. I like how they're coached defensively. I like their upside on the offensive side of the ball and how they can run the football. And Houston has a potential if they get in the playoffs to really scare somebody. Uh, we'll see if they make the playoffs. Again, there's some teams that's their season could be on the line. The Texans are the 10th best team in the National Football League at number nine for the third consecutive week. And I believe rightfully so with every fiber of my being, it is the Buffalo Bills. The Bills are the ninth best team in the National Football League. And here is why. So everybody's all on the Buffalo Bills bandwagon. I get it. I understand. They have one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, Josh Allen, who's a spectacular talent. They have Stephon Diggs, one of the better receivers in the league, who's been quite cold over the last eight games uh, or so. Uh, they run the football effectively. Defensively, they're well coached with Sean McDermott. I get everything. All that in a bag of chips. The Bills beat the Chiefs in Arrowhead, and they beat the Cowboys badly when the Cowboys were hot in back-to-back -back weeks. Yes, since then, they needed a game-winning field goal to beat Easton Stick and the Chargers. A week after that, we're in a dogfight despite Bailey Zappi throwing not one, not two, three first-half picks. And that was a game midway through the fourth quarter. It's a one-score game midway through the fourth quarter. Josh Allen, I love Josh Allen so much, man. He's amazing. He can't help himself with some of these reckless plays. That is going to doom this Buffalo Bills team. Whether it's this weekend against Miami, whether it's in the postseason, it will plague this team in the end when it's all said and done. I do like what Buffalo has offensively. I like the fact that they've run the football effectively in this wing streak. Props to him and props to Sean McDermott. We've been on Sean McDermott, but he's made the necessary adjustments. But the flaws that have plagued the Buffalo Bills all season long, I believe will plague them 
when it's all said and done. Could be this as soon as this weekend. Could be next weekend. I don't buy into this team as a championship contender. But the Buffalo Bills are the ninth best team in the National Football League. The team that they're going to be playing on Sunday in their building is at number eight. It is the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins are the eighth best team in the National Football League this week. Again, down three spots from last week when I had them at number five after that win over Dallas. Listen, I know some people are just absolutely selling all of their Dolphins stock, and I understand that. They have one win. They only have one win against a team with a winning rec- winning record. That's Dallas. They went to Baltimore and absolutely got the dorms blown off of them, fifty six to nineteen. Jalen Waddles injured. Seeing, we'll see if he comes back this week. They were dealt a brutal blow with Bradley Chubb going down for the season with an ACL tear. It just sucks for him because he was having such a great year. So prayers for a speedy recovery for Bradley Chubb. But you got two at Sungavailoa. You got this Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle and Raheem Moster uh, offense. My rule for teams that get humiliated, great teams essentially, and I believe the Dolphins are that is that if they get humiliated on national television, a lot of times they're a great bet to cover very next week. If not, went straight up, and the Miami Dolphins are home dogs to the Buffalo Bills. We'll see how they respond. But two has had the best season of his career. Tyreek is having a, a, a marvelous year. By the way, prayers to Tyreek and his family. I know they're dealing with a crisis with their house, so shout out, shout out to them and prayers for them. But the Dolphins, I like what they have defensively. I think they'll bounce back in a big way. Listen, Baltimore be- blows out a lot of teams, okay? So the Dolphins were the latest victim of that. The Dolphins are the eighth best team in the National Football League. At number seven, up a spot from last week. Makes me sick, but I gotta be honest and objective. It's the Cleveland Browns. The Browns are the seventh best team in the National Football League, and here's why. So, listen, Cleveland getting Joe Flacco in their 4-0 since he become, I'm sorry, uh, their 4-0 in their last four games since he became the de facto starter of this football team. We know what this uh, uh, this defense is capable of doing, led by Miles Garrett. It's probably the scariest unit potentially in the National Football League. They're well coached with Kevin Stefanski, and I got to give the Browns a lot of credit. Because they've lost a lot of key players to injury. Obviously, Deshaun Watson, who wasn't that much of a positive for them anyway. But they lost Nick Chubb. They dealt with injuries to the running backs. Amari Cooper has been in and out of the lineup. David Njoku, God bless him, has dealt with some burns. Uh, and has been able to come back and be an impact player. They've dealt with injuries on the offensive line, and yet and still, they continue to play ground and pound football, playing to their identity. This notion, I remember a couple of years ago, even a year ago, hey, is Kevin Stefanski in the hot seat? I'm like, if he is, then disband the Browns organization because they don't know what they're doing because this guy is one of the better offensive coaches in all football. The defense for Cleveland, coached by Jim Schwartz, who's one of the better defensive minds in all football. They're clicking. They're, they're, they're rolling right now. They, I swear to you, they would be higher on my list if they had an elite quarterback or even a very good quarterback. I get Flacco's putting up elite numbers. He's top five in virtually every statistical category in the span that he took over for the Browns. But there's a reason he was on the street. I should say on the street. There's a reason he was on his couch uh, before December. I understand that. Uh, I feel like he's going to come back to earth and turn to a pumpkin sooner rather than later, which is why I don't totally believe in the Browns as Super Bowl contenders. But I love that defense. Love their offensive playmakers. The Browns are the seventh best team in the National Football League. At number six for the second week in a row, it is the Los Angeles Rams. The Rams are the sixth best team in the National Football League. And here is why. So the Rams, I've been saying it over the last two months. They have been arguably the best team in the, in the NFL in that span. They've lost, they've lost only one game since they, they beat Seattle at, at home and it kind of a, a, a go-either-way game. They were three and six. They won six of their last seven. They're one loss at Baltimore in overtime. So the Ravens, who've been crushing everybody off of a bye week nonetheless, were in a dogfight with the Rams, actually trailed late in the fourth quarter before Lamar led a, a game-time drive. The Rams are rolling offensively, didn't play particularly well against the Giants on the road. Listen, Giants, Brian Dable, well-coached team, kind of a frisky team that can surprise you uh, any given Sunday or Monday, whatever the case may be. 
because Matthew Stafford's played as well as any quarterback in the league over the last couple of months. Puka Nakua is rolling. He's only 28 yards away from the all-time NFL rookie receiving record. Cooper Cup, when healthy, is still an impact player. My twin, uh, Aaron Donald, I've got a good linebacking core as well. Kyron Williams has had one of the better rookie uh, rookie running back seasons we've seen in some time. This Rams team is the absolute, if you're a division champion, if you're Dallas, if you're Detroit, that's the last team you want to see in the first round of the playoffs, given their championship experience, given the fact that they have an elite quarterback coach, uh, two elite receivers, I believe, and an elite defensive player, or two of the scary Rams team you don't want to see in the long run. The Rams are the sixth best team in the National Football League. At number five, only coming down a spot from a week ago, it is the Detroit Lions. The Lions are the fifth best team in the National Football League, and here's why. So, listen, I'm not going to butt Detroit down too much after losing on the road in Dallas. They've come closer than anybody this season to beating the Cowboys on uh, on the road. Listen, Dallas averages 37 points a game at home, or 8-0 at home. Detroit walked in their building and came... Potentially, arguably, I don't totally subscribe to this, but arguably uh, an, an officiating uh, error away, officiating breakaway, rather, from winning that game in Arlington, Texas against the Cowboys. Jared Goff had a down game, and we understand, I said this earlier in the show, that Jared Goff is kind of a limited quarterback, uh, went under pressure because of his immobility. The good news is, because, because Detroit has such a great offensive line, that doesn't happen very often. I think Detroit has by far the most underrated offensive skill position group in all football. Amonra St. Brown is having the best year of his career, over 13 yards, uh, 1,300 yards receiving elite receiver. Sam Laporta is the best rookie tight end I've ever seen in my life. Again, elite offensive line, Panay Sewell, Decker, etc. You've got J uh, Jameer Gibbs running the football. You've got David Montgomery running the football. This is an elite Lions skill position group offensively. I think the undoing of this football team is going to be its defense. I don't trust them situationally or in, in, in regards to the game in totality. Dan Campbell, we saw it on Saturday. We've seen it all season long. He's an aggressive coach. He'll fake punt you. He'll go for it on fourth down. He'll go from two-point conversions from the seven-yard line, which is a bit ill-advised, but you get the point. They're a well-coached football team, great offense. I have concerns about their defense, though, but I think their offense is more than capable of winning at least one playoff game. The Lions are the fifth-best team in the National Football League. At number four, moving up three spots from last week, it is the Kansas City Chiefs, the defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs are the fourth best team in the National Football League, and here's why. So, Patrick Mahomes obviously has had a down year from what we're used to uh, seeing from the best quarterback in all of football. The same could be said about Travis Kelsey. But I'll tell you something. The fact that they played a Lou Amarino coach defense and were able to muster, again, you, you kind of roll your eyes, at ah, six field goals. Well, that's six drives that ended in Cincinnati territory. So they moved the football effectively. They let it, Mahomes let a scoring drive. So listen, and I said this about Kansas City. We need to accept who they are this season in term, in, instead of what we've seen from them in years past. This is like a New England Patriots, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick team in the 20-year dynasty that we saw from them where it's an all-time great quarterback, an all-time great tight end at the end of his prime, a good enough running game, although I like Kansas City's running game with Pacheco more than I like some of Brady's and, and the Patriots. Offensive line struggling, we understand that. But the defense, like a lot of Belichick defenses, is nothing short of elite. They absolutely mauled the Cincinnati's offensive line late in that game. Chris Jones literally took over down the stretch. He's one of the best defensive players in the sport. The secondary for Kansas City is good. I think this mini buy, or not even just a mini buy, straight up buy that they've got this week against the uh, against the Chargers because they're resting all their starters is exactly what the doctor ordered for the Kansas City Chiefs. Give us these offensive players kind of a reset, give them a week off, and have them set and ready to go at Arrowhead Stadium in the postseason. I still believe this Kansas City Chiefs team is the biggest threat to the Ravens to win the AFC. The Chiefs are the fourth best team 
in the National Football League. Staying at their number three spot from last week, it is the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys are the third best team in the National Football League, and here is why. So, again, I believe in Dallas for the same reasons that I believed in them all season long, because they have an elite quarterback who's pushing to be top five in the sport, a wide receiver in CeeDee Lamb, who is a top five receiver in the sport, undoubtedly. By the way, CeeDee Lamb, over 200 yards receiving last week, over 220 yards receiving last week against the Detroit Lions. And listen, Dallas' defense, I had concerns about them coming into that game against Detroit in terms of their ability to stop the run. I get the Lions ran for over 120 yards, but it felt like through most of that game, especially, especially on third down and short situations, I feel like Dallas' defense was money. Demarcus Lawrence had the best game I've seen from him in a long time. Micah Parsons made an impact against a great offensive line in Detroit. So I like Dallas' secondary. I'm a little concerned about Deron Bland. Can you kind of expose him uh, in the playoffs potentially with some of the great quarterbacks that the Cowboys will face? But Dak Prescott, CeeDee Lamb, I think is the best duo, and I'm not kidding. That includes Tua, Tyreek, Mahomes, Kelsey. I think right now, Dak to Lamb is the best duo in the National Football League. We saw it connect for a 92-yard bomb touchdown and 12 other completions throughout the course of that game. I don't think Dallas can run the football terribly effectively, and I have questions about Mike McCarthy in late-game situations. I think they have a great quarterback having the best year of his career, a great receiver having the best year of his career, and a defense that any given Sunday is more than capable of dominating a football game. Again, they held one of the best offenses in football to 19 points. Like that's There's something to be said about that. The Cowboys are the third best team in the National Football League. Retaining their spot at number two, it is the San Francisco 49ers. The Niners are the second best team in the NFL, and here is why. So, Brock Purdy, this Niners offense, really needed a good reset against the Washington Commanders' terrible defense last week, so hats off to them for, for getting the job done. This Niners defense is about as loaded as they come. Able to get, uh, able to stop Washington from doing much of anything offensively. The commanders only scoring 10 points. And again, listen, the Niners getting absolutely dominated by the Ravens at home on Christmas Day. Listen, short week, East Coast game, one o'clock kickoff in Washington. A little bit of a hard game to kind of get your body ready for. But for San Francisco to come in, take care of business, do what they were supposed to do, and clinch that one seed in the NFC. Obviously, there starts the, the rest versus rust argument. What do you do in terms of having a, a potential buy this week in terms of resting your starters and a legit buy next week before you play your divisional playoff game? But I simply think that when San Francisco plays the game on their terms, they're about as hard to stop as there is, about as hard to stop a team as there is in all football. I still maintain, even with the loss to Baltimore, I guess the best roster top to bottom in the NFL. The only, the only concern I have about the, the 49ers. Can they play from behind? There's a lot of stats with Shanahan, with Purdy. We can get into another day, but neither, neither are great playing from behind. Actually, are kind of bad playing from behind. But it's a great roster. The Niners more than deserving. By far, best team in the NFC from start to finish. We'll see if they're able to make it happen in the postseason. The Niners are the second best team in the National Football League. And of course, at number one, I got to say, even as a, as a Steelers fan, uh, it's pretty obvious, the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens are the best team in the NFL, and here's why. So for you to come off, again, a short week after that win against San Francisco, I get you're at home. One o'clock kickoff, be ready to go against a Dolphins team that is feeling good about themselves after that win against the Dallas Cowboys. And for you to come into that game absolutely kick their teeth in from start to finish. Lamar Jackson was nothing short of spectacular. It's the third game of Lamar's career in which he had more touchdowns than incompletions. That's how great of a talent that this guy is. He's the clear MVP of the National Football League. I would argue he's the unanimous MVP for the second time 
in his career. Baltimore's defense, number one in the NFL in terms of scoring defense, holding a red-hot Dolphins offense to 19 points in that contest. Tyreek Hill had virtually no impact whatsoever. Two and Tunga Bailoa, multiple turnovers in this game. Uh, but Lamar, the perfect passer rating, in my view, really clinching the MVP award in Week 17. The Ravens' running game is elite. John Harbaugh is an elite head coach. Again, the only concern, it's kind of like San Francisco, my only concern for Baltimore is a conditional one in the sense that we've seen them, and this matters, blow 10 double-digit leads since 2020. That's the most in the NFL. So can they sort of rebound from that? Can they come back from that? I think they're more than capable of doing so. I mean, a lot of comparisons between this Ravens team and the 2019 Ravens team that went one done the playoffs. I'm completely with John Harbaugh. This is a very, very different squad, different roster, different quarterback in Lamar Jackson in terms of his ability, his, his, his improvement over the last four years. So that's why I really, really love what this Ravens team is at. And they have every right to be the favorites, not just in the NFC, but to win the Super Bowl, to take home a third Lombardi trophy to Baltimore. Much as it hurts me as a Steelers fan to say, the Ravens are the best team in the National Football League. I got to be honest. That's, that's where they're at. Patrick Brown in the comments. Texans have a bright future with no expectations. They've exceeded beyond the call of duty. CJ is that dude and has a very bright career ahead of him. There's no doubt about it. I thought the Texans were one of the more poorly run uh, operations in all of football. Uh, we've seen many of their mistakes in the past, but it kind of goes to show you that when you have when you have that elite guy at that position, it changes everything. It changes your outlook. I mean, we saw it with Joe Burrow in Cincinnati taking over a garbage organization that accomplished literally nothing uh, in terms of playoff success in literally three decades when they drafted him. And now we look at Cincinnati with a, obviously a healthy Burrow. That's not the case this year. But when Burrow's healthy, we view them as one of the biggest Super Bowl threats year in and year out. So let's look back over the list of Bryce's best 10. If we can pull this thing up here, here we go. Uh, from 1 to 10, there's the graphic right there for the YouTube and Twitter audience. For those listening, 1 to 10. Number uh, 1 to 10, I've got the Ravens, 49ers, Cowboys, Chiefs, Lions, Rams, Browns, Dolphins, Bills, and rounding at the top 10 is the Houston Texans. Believe it or not, I actually consider the Green Bay Packers for that spot. That number 9 spot, as much as that may shock you guys with the cheesehead Aussie thing and everything, but listen, Jordan Love has played about as well as any quarterback in football this year. I mean, he's third in the NFL in touchdown passes. Like, I, I listen, I it's one thing about me. I can have a strong opinion on somebody or something. But if I'm proven wrong, and thus far, I kind of have been. I'm willing to admit it. And this is a Packers team that's a win away from the playoffs. I did not think that they would come all that close to making the playoffs and get props to them. Now, and again, now the reason I put Houston in over Green Bay is I do still like Stroud over Jordan Love. And I certainly, this was kind of the deciding factor for me, is I like D'Amico Ryans more than Matt LaFleur. And I definitely like this Houston defense over that Packers defense. Um Will Anderson, to me, should be the defensive rookie of the year. He's proven that over the course of the season. I believe he has seven sacks uh, on the year and, and more pressures than that, no question. Uh, I, I think Green Bay's defense is going to – and Green Bay's defense and their youth is going to be kind of what, what what does them in uh, this year during the playoffs. But props for it, too. Uh, Green Bay has, has taken care of business. There's no doubt about that. Uh, also, before we get into our last segment, this just sort of – I don't know. This this just popped in my – popped in my head very recently is speaking of Green Bay, you know, the Packers, who I didn't think would be very good this year, are literally one win away from making the playoffs. Literally, if they win, they're in. After missing last year. And Mike McCarthy is about to lead the Cowboys to their third straight 12-1 season and their second divisional title in that spam 
and have about as good of a chance as anybody in the conference to make the Super Bowl. The Packers are rolling, and Mike McCarthy having maybe the best year of his coaching career. And um, Meanwhile, Aaron Rodgers is accusing late-night show hosts of being involved with deceased criminals. Just a thought. Just throwing, throwing that out there. You know, just strange. You know, we were we were dancing on the grave of the Packers. I certainly was. And we thought Mike McCarthy was a bad head coach, and they're both doing pretty well. And Aaron's Jets, a roster he essentially constructed, not doing so well, and Aaron is off promoting his conspiracy theories. We, it's, hey, one thing about Aaron, you know what you're getting from a consistency standpoint. You you know what you're getting there. Yikes. That, that's... Man, I'll tell you what, man. Pat McAfee's having to do some legit damage control. I mean, like, I mean, I would say, and I love McAfee. I love McAfee. I would say I feel kind of bad for him, but then again, it is his idea to have Aaron on the show. So that's uh, all those components come in as well. Um, Last topic, and I wanted to pull this up because uh, one of the greatest players in the history of the NBA, a guy who made the, the top 75 list, was talking recently about Kobe Bryant, the late, great Kobe Bryant. In my view, it might be the fourth greatest basketball player who ever lived. And funny thing, and this is going to kind of come up here, is that the Kobe fans and supporters are like, MJ's the GOAT, Kobe's number two. Some people even have Kobe as the GOAT. And then the Kobe, I'll say skeptics, I'll be nice today. I won't use the five-letter H word to describe them. I'll be nice today. But the Kobe skeptics are like, ah, he's... Like the eighth or ninth best player ever. I think both both opinions are are nuts. I've got him fourth. I don't have many. I don't see many people that have him like that number four spot. I've got him behind LeBron, Jordan, and Kareem. Like I, I think those three, whatever order you have them in, I think it has to be either LeBron or Jordan for the goat. Obviously, we've debated that for years. I think Kareem is the clear three. Kareem's basketball resume is, including LeBron and Jordan, about as good as they come. Was the best player in high school. The best player in college the best player in the NBA, won a million championships and MVPs and was the all-time scoring leader. So, you know, that 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 stuff uh, comes in as well. But Allen Iverson, obviously, again, one of the greatest players ever, was talking about Kobe Bryant, uh, talking about, you know, sort of where he ranks all-time. And he says that the GOAT debate is only between Michael Jordan and Kobe. His quote was, I say Mike and I say Kobe, and then there's everyone else. So he's essentially saying that Kobe Bryant is the second best player ever, and we shouldn't be debating LeBron versus Jordan. We should be debating Kobe versus Jordan. So I won't even add the MJ component to that today because having MJ as the GOAT is a perfectly legitimate opinion. I disagree. I have LeBron as the GOAT, but I'm the rare guy that has LeBron as the GOAT that thinks, hey, I, I get where you're coming from with MJ. I do. We can fight about it all day, but I get where you're coming from. But arguing, it's just the truth, arguing... That Kobe Bryant, and I love Kobe, was better than LeBron James. It's not a factual argument. It's just not. We can do the side-by-side here in the multiple graphics. So in terms of most titles, most championships, obviously that belongs to Kobe being Bryant. He won five championships to LeBron's four. Obviously LeBron may tie him, may not tie him. But as we say here today, Kobe's got LeBron beat in terms of titles. What about MVPs? LeBron's got him there. How about most finals MVPs? LeBron's got to beat there. By the way, in terms of the MVPs, LeBron, uh, just to throw out the number, LeBron has four MVPs to Kobe's one. Uh, LeBron has four MVPs in the finals to Kobe's 
to the most rebounds all time. LeBron has, uh, if we could pull this up here, LeBron has 10,896 rebounds to Kobe's 7,047. Most points all time, that kind of matters. LeBron is, after all, the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. LeBron James with 39,440 points to Kobe Bryant's 33,643. And you're like, well, what about points per game? And we can't just judge it all time because that's the thing. Kobe is a better scorer than LeBron James. No, he's not. LeBron averages more points per game than Kobe Bryant. 27.2 points per game all time for LeBron to 25 uh, exactly for Kobe. He's also way, way, and I mean way more efficient if we could pull this stat up here because in terms of the efficiency comparison between those two, uh, LeBron and Kobe, Kobe simply are not close uh, in terms of field goal percentage, in terms of three-point percentage. Uh, LeBron James beats Kobe Bryant in the sense of field goal percentage. Do we have the stat here? All right, there it is. LeBron beats Kobe in the field goal percentage department. Okay, he beats him... 50.5 to 44.7. So LeBron beats him by a pretty pretty large margin in terms of three-point percentage. Well, Kobe's the shooter. Oh, LeBron beats him there too. Neither are great, but LeBron shooting percentage is 34.5 to Kobe's 32.9. Now, how about all defense selections? If we have that stat here, well... Kobe's got beat, LeBron beat there. Kobe has uh, uh, 12 all-defense selections to LeBron six. So Kobe beats LeBron relatively comfortably in that regard. What about most assists all-time? It's not even close. LeBron James is top five all-time in assists. He has 10,649. Kobe has 6,306. It is simply not close between those two. How about first-team all-NBA selections? LeBron also has more than Kobe Bryant. 13 first-team All-NBA selections to Kobe Bryant's 11. So it's not close in that regard either. Well, how about this one? This is the big one. You always say, when it comes down to the final minute, who will you take? Taking the last shot. Is it Kobe Bryant? Is it LeBron James? It's LeBron James. He has more buzzer beaters all-time than Kobe. Eight buzzer beaters all-time for LeBron. Two, six for Kobe Bryant. And how about this? LeBron has more buzzer beaters in the playoffs than Kobe has in totality. Like that, LeBron's the better player. LeBron's a better scorer, passer, rebounder. Now, Kobe's got him defensively. I can't, can't lie with the numbers. Kobe's got 12 all-defense selections. LeBron's got six. Like this, can't argue with that. LeBron's, by the way, I didn't even mention this. More all-star selections. Uh, the all-time leading score in NBA history. With respect to Kobe Bryant, the fourth greatest basketball player who ever walked this earth, Kobe did not get to a finals. Did not even compete for a finals unless he had a second co-star. And guess what? Just about every star, every player that's ever played in the NBA, you can say that exact same sentence about. Basically all of them. Magic needed Kareem. Kareem needed Oscar and Magic. MJ needed Pippen and Rodman at the second half or the second aspect or the second part of that dynasty. Bird needed McHale, uh, Kevin McHale. Tim Duncan needed Tony Parker or Manu Ginobili or briefly David Robinson. Shaq needed Kobe. Kobe needed Shaq. Bill Russell needed all those Hall of Fame teammates he had around him in Boston. Akeem Olajuwon needed Clyde Drexler. We can keep going on and on if we want to do this. Steph Curry needed Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson. 
LeBron, you know what he needs? A date and time to be there. And a basketball. And a hoop. And four other guys on the floor with him. Because that's what he's done twice. 07. Who was the second best player on that Cavs team? You just throw out a name. Was it Anderson Verajal? Was it Zadrunas Ilgauskas? Took that team to the finals in his, in his fourth year at age 23. LeBron James also in 2018, in year 15, took a Cavs team that had an old Kevin Love, George Hill, and J.R. Smith, and Jeff Green to within four wins away from a championship. When similar casts like that were around Kobe, with all due respect to Kobe, they never came even remotely close to competing for a championship in any single one of those years. A host of first-round exits. Now, should we hold that against Kobe relative to other players in NBA history? Absolutely not. I don't believe we should. But if we're comparing him to a guy that I believe is the greatest player ever and who is objectively at least number two, Love you, AI. You could not be more wrong on this. Kobe beats LeBron in terms of the major accomplishments or statistical categories in terms of uh, all defense selections and championships. You know, give LeBron Shaquille O'Neal in his prime. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he probably wins a couple. That's not to diminish Kobe. But comparing him to LeBron James, who's taken crappy teams to the finals, who when you give him any sort of a superstar next to him, Dwayne Wade, Kyrie Irving, Anthony Davis, he immediately wins. Within two years, he gets his championship, or multiple, like he did in Miami. Kobe Bryant, like all other superstars who's ever who ever played this game, needs another co-star. LeBron needs a date, time to be there, a basketball, a hoop, and four other teammates. That's the difference. Love Kobe. Always have, always will. I've been a Kobe Bryant. I've ne- I hate the Lakers. Always loved Kobe. He's not LeBron James. He's he's just not. Like this is, this is an argument that if you take Kobe over LeBron, you are completely ignoring facts and objectivity. That's that that that's that's the name of the game. That's and again and that's that's you know what I hate about these discussions too, is that we feel like we almost have to diminish a guy. We feel like we have to diminish, or at least like people who who talk about LeBron feel like they have to diminish Kobe, and like you really don't want to do that because he's so great. You know, I, I did this a few weeks ago when uh, Shaq said that Steph Curry is in the goat discussion. I'm like, I'm the biggest Steph Curry fan on the planet. He's not in the goat discussion. He is not LeBron. He's not MJ. He's not Kareem. To me, the highest Steph can get is four. I think he can actually pass Kobe at some point because there's a point in time Steph may beat Kobe in championships. He's already gotten him beaten in, in MVPs. And the impact of the game is certainly far greater than, than what Kobe's was. I think that's the highest Steph can get. I've got him sixth right now. I think another championship or MVP, he surpasses Magic unequivocally. Couple championships, we may have to start having that discussion if he beats Kobe Bryant in that regard. Because he's already got him in MVPs. As far as Kareem LeBron, uh, sorry, Kareem LeBron and MJ, forget about it. He they. He can't touch those guys. Because really, I'm not sure anybody can touch those. I mean, uh, if Wimby does something, I, I don't know. But, yeah. I don't know. It, and, and I love AI. AI is one of the realest dudes out there. We, we've always known that about him. And uh, I think it would be a great interview. Rachel Nichols did a great interview with him the other day. But, no, nah, AI, AI tripping on this one. He, he's, he's tripping. Maybe he's still got, like, PTSD from the, from the finals back of the day. 
when he carried a terrible, I shouldn't say a terrible, he carried an average Sixers team as a 6-1 guard to the finals and actually beat Kobe and Shaq in one of those games when everybody thought the Lakers would sweep uh, Philadelphia. Um, and obviously we know he was tight with Kobe Bryant, but nah, nah, he, he, he tripped. That's one thing too, and then we'll get out of here. And this can't, listen, this is something that can be, can't be measured in stats or numbers, analytics, anything. But always when I hear from AI, from others, like Kobe's better than LeBron, is that Kobe had like the greatest killer instinct we've ever seen. And that could not be more true. He, he is, he, he's the, and they call him the black mom, but for a reason, like he, he's, he's the type of dude I'm going to, I'm going to metaphorically in basketball terms, I'm going to kill you and you know, I'm coming after you and I'm still going to do it. Like, that's just how Kobe was wired. Very MJ-like in that regard. Um, but this whole thing, first, like, people don't fear LeBron. First of all, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. Ask the Toronto Raptors how they feel about LeBron James. Ask my Golden State Warriors how they feel about LeBron James. Ask the Spurs. Ask Kevin Durant. Ask the Celtics who he's owned. And nobody, nobody fears LeBron James. Okay. Okay. And something else, too. This said player puts more fear in you than another player. Okay, let's let's use an example. Just off the top of my head. Who do we look at in today's modern NBA as like a go-at-your-throat type of dude? Like a guy who get the ball in his hands, get out the way, he's going to make it happen. Damian Lillard would be my first thought. Like you get the ball to Dame, man, Dame's going to close the game out. You are scared of Dame. Absolutely. I'm scared. I'm more scared of Damian Lillard in those situations than I would be Magic Johnson. Does that mean Dame's better than Magic? Not even close. So, so he was feared more. Magic was not feared. At, I always use Magic as the example. Magic was not feared at all. And he's the greatest point guard of all time. So that's. I think that's a flimsy argument when we're talking about stuff like this. I think it's really, really flimsy. Again, not to diminish Kobe at all. And LeBron, while he has a killer instinct that folks will not acknowledge, it's not a, that, that of Kobe, because frankly, I don't even think MJ was as much of a, a, of a natural-born basketball killer as Kobe was. But, uh, yeah. It's, Kobe, let's put it this way, LeBron versus Jordan is a funner debate. It, it is. It's, it's more nip and tuck. LeBron's way better than Kobe. He, he is. All right, that is all the time we have for today's show. Appreciate everybody stopping by, as always. Be sure to catch Car Me Up Live on Friday. What a show we'll have then. NFL predictions, playoff, uh, you know, playoff possibilities and probabilities and what needs to happen for this team to get in and this team again and how does it affect this team. We're going to go over all the scenarios and do all the predictions, and I will tell you exactly on Friday's show, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific time, Twitter and on YouTube, how the playoffs will look in the National Football League come Monday morning. I will tell you exactly how they'll come out or uh, turn out on Friday night. Tune in 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific time, right here on Twitter, as well as the Carving It Up YouTube channel and the Grid Network YouTube channel. Of course, be sure to like, share, comment, and take two seconds out of your day. Hit that big red subscribe button. It helps the channel grow exponentially. Again, Trying to get to 1,000 subscribers before or by Super Bowl 58, 58, which is February the 11th. 
We have, I think we've surpassed 650 subscribers. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for, for subscribing to the show, for supporting the show, for tuning into the show, watching it live, watching our clips. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. So to all of our subscribers, thank you so much. Please, please be sure to tell your friends and your family and everybody you know about Carving Up Live. If you have not subscribed and you're watching on YouTube right now, right there, the red button that says subscribe, hit it and you're part of the Carving It Up family, would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Of course, also, just as important, be sure to go subscribe to The Grid Network. That is G-R-Y-D, The Grid Podcast Network, right here on YouTube, as well as any and everywhere you get your favorite podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, any and everywhere you get your favorite podcast. You can find my show, Carving It Up, as well as our other awesome content creators on the network, as well as the Grid Network website, where my man Patrick Brown, who you've seen in the comments today, writes some great, great pieces, some great articles for the website. So check his stuff out on the Grid Network website. Check our stuff out on, on terms of the audio clips, my stuff, as well as uh, the other content creators on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple, everywhere else, uh, anywhere you listen to your podcast. Fun show today. College football, NFL, NBA. It was a good old-fashioned early January show. Very excited for Friday. A lot of NFL playoffs talk. It is going to be an absolute blast, and I cannot wait for it. Stay safe out there, everybody. Uh, be sure to take care of your physical as well as your mental health. And, of course, please, please, please be sure to contact your local state representatives and senators to demand change for gun violence here in America. It is a problem we have got to address. Very, very passionate about this. Okay. Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific time. See you all there. You get a fun NFL-loaded show. Stay safe out there. God bless you all. Peace out. Packers and McCarthy doing pretty good, Aaron. Thanks so much for watching the show on YouTube, and be sure to go click that big red subscribe button and check out the other clips and full shows from Carving It Up Live as well as our other incredible content creators here on the Grid Network.